They really don't care whether he's doing a good job on other things. They have a deep attachment around those two critical and interrelated and overlapping identifications. Authoritarianism, strong leader, whiteness, white nationalism. It's all very fascist. Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show. Welcome aboard. Hope you're uh, enjoying Counterpunch as you're sitting in your quarantined homes in your uh, in the midst of this pandemic. Counterpunch, at least for me, speaking personally, really is coming in quite handy in these times because not only am I able to read through these old print issues of the magazine. I'm also able to get new content every single day. And frankly, there aren't a lot of spaces online that you can really count on for that kind of daily uh, content, that sort of steady stream of really good uh, articles to look at every single day, but also, of course, this humble little podcast and the print magazine and the uh, the online store and all of the other things that we offer at Counterpunch. So if you value those things, please consider becoming a subscriber. You can get a subscription to the magazine. You can make a donation. You can uh, do it through the PayPal. You can do it over the phone. Whatever works for you, we really do appreciate it. I know that I'm really valuing alternative media. Uh, these last few weeks, especially um, as I simply can't trust the bullshit coming from the corporate media. So uh, with that said, please do uh, consider that. And also uh, just a little plug for my other work on my Patreon. I'm restarting some of the content over there as well. You can find me there at patreon.com slash Eric Dreitzer. So uh, out of the way with the self-promotion, with the hawking of my wares, I welcome Paul Street back onto the show. He's a regular. He's a swell guy. He's an iconoclast. He's also an author. He has a website, paulstreet.org. Uh, the 2014 book, which I highly recommend, which is sitting somewhere in this pile of books behind me, They Rule the 1% versus Democracy. Paul, welcome back. Thanks, Eric. Glad to be here. Speaking from my coronavirus, coronavirus bunker in the basement of my house in Iowa City. The coronavirus cone of silence is uh, probably going to be apt in the coming days and weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, if we could get one around Trump, ideally. Wouldn't that be something? 
uh, <laughs> Harkonnen, President <laughs> President Harkonnen, as it were. Um, yeah. So uh, talk to me about your latest piece, Paul. We had it in Counterpunch a couple of days ago. We're recording here in the middle of the week. This is March 25th, so you guys are hearing this several days after uh, that. But uh, you had a piece entitled The Pathogenic Profit System Beyond Begging, Praying, and Capital, which I thought was really, really interesting. Of course, pathogenic being so appropriate. Talk to me about... Uh, the virus and capitalism. And I want to frame this discussion for listeners by thinking about if you listen to last week's episode, I had Marxist economist Michael Roberts on the show talking extensively about the connection between capitalism and the virus, the pandemic, uh, what we're going through right now. Paul, bring it from a different perspective. How do you see that connection? Well, I certainly agree with <clears throat> Roberts. Uh, he understands it on a level that I don't. He's an actual practicing uh, <clears throat> economist. Uh, but, you know, where I'm sure he and I agree is that, um, you know, this notion that uh, things are going along just great, and then this black swan came in right out of nowhere. Just a big surprise, nothing anyone could have ever expected might happen, called COVID-19. And that this outside event... <clears throat> Uh, which we had no reasons to uh, anticipate, have crashed things. Uh, it really has nothing to do with the inherent contradictions or the internal nature of capitalism. Uh, and, and as a result, that system, uh, well, particularly its elites, uh, its top corporations and financial institutions uh, urgently require from the taxpayers, from the public sector, a major uh, bailout uh, to set things right again. And my point in that essay was not so fast. Uh, there's nothing particularly surprising about the coronavirus. We've had pandemics forever. We've also had financial crises uh, forever. There have been hundreds of epidemics in human history. There have been at least 80 since the onset of the modern world system in the 16th century. Uh, we've had 30 epidemics, including four that went worldwide uh, in this um, first fifth of this century alone. Swine flu, MERS, Zika virus, COVID. I suppose you could inc- include Ebola as well, though it's not really worldwide. It was mostly in Western Africa. And, you know, people who study this stuff for a living, uh, public health experts, epidemiologists, I always mispronounce that particular profession, have been advocating uh, preparedness for the likely emergence of the next great uh, worldwide epidemic, a pandemic, forever. Uh, They've been talking about this for a long time, and if we were any kind of rational, decent, organized human, uh, just and forward-looking and together society, uh, we'd be spending massive sums on on pandemic readiness, right? Instead, we spend more than a trillion dollars a year on a Pentagon budget that, you know, accounts for 40% of um, military expenditures in the world. Uh, And so now we're sort of caught with our pants down in the face of this crisis. By the way, we like wiped out uh, about half of our former hospital bed capacity because of neoliberal uh, corporate hospital streamlining in the last 20 to 30 years. And, you know, so this wasn't a surprise. And boom and bust is, is, is not a surprise at all. This is how capitalism has always it has always, it's always worked through a boom and bust cycle, right? And, uh, you know, when, the, the, you know, the normal creation of surplus value and profits through production, you know, in the classic Marxist model, 
uh, uh, is blocked, as it ultimately always is by various limits of labor supply, raw material supply, limits of demand, because problems of excess capital, too much technology, too much investment, too much competition, and, and profit rates fall and capital flows into these kind of moving paper fantasy uh, financial capital investments fueling speculative bubbles and they crash and that leads to devaluation of capital, bankruptcies, unemployment, evictions, poverty, heightened mortality, all kinds of other horrible stuff. And there have been, you know, dozens uh, of, of um, stock market crashes really since the middle of the 19th century and when they're big enough and they're bad enough and uh, the imbalances that gave rise to them are extreme enough, uh, they give rise to recessions and even sometimes to depressions. And we may be talking this time um, about a depression. I have heard people with uh, far more economic expertise than myself uh, refer to the possibility of 25 to 30% unemployment. That's life-changing, society-changing levels of joblessness by the middle of this summer. Uh, um, You know, and this, this, this is not new. And um, the, the, the coronavirus can be said to have caused the crisis in a very immediate sense. It was the trigger. It itself, in these pandemics, and one of the reasons public health experts have been so uh, concerned about a pandemic is that capitalism, Marx and Engels were right, has an inherent tendency towards globalization. You know, it digs up value, it digs up raw materials, it digs up labor power, uh, uh, it, it seeks to exploit nature and labor power and find markets in every nook and cranny of the world. Uh, and, and, and modern capitalism is, globe, is, is profoundly globalist. You can have a virus in literally one hemisphere that moves to another uh, hemisphere within less than 24 hours thanks to jet transportation and, and all, so capitalism digs it up and then it spreads it. That Yes, the COVID-19 is the trigger for this particular boom and bust, but all kinds of economists and all kinds of folks, even amateur uh, hack followers of political economy like myself, were just kind of wondering for at least the last couple of years when, when the next trigger was coming. We just didn't know what it would be, obviously, or exactly what day it would be, but but you know, we've had incredibly inflated asset values, absurdly high price earning ratios, ridiculously debt leveraged companies, extreme inequality, ridiculous levels of inequality, horribly inadequate wages, uh, massive consumer and student debt, and of course, chronic toxic financial and social deregulation, which tends to precede these things. And so we were just kind of waiting. And now who knows, maybe we've got the mother of all economic meltdowns, uh, it's a huge discouragement to um, to uh, uh, cons- to mass consumption. And 70% of the U.S. economy now is mass consumption, and we've got a lunatic, far out, extreme capitalist president uh, saying truly irresponsible and absolutely preposterous things about uh, maybe opening up, uh, uh, you know, the restrictions on social distancing and getting everyone back to work. No joke, by Easter, right? By Easter, which I, I find very appropriate, right? Before Easter, we, the day of the resurrection. Before you uh, 
steal my thunder with my Christ references that I have loaded up for the next question uh, <laughs> on that subject. Um, I do want to note something else that I find really interesting because in the years that I've you know, grown to be socialist, uh, anti-capitalist, and understanding of capitalism, that capitalism is constantly seeking growth. And yet the dialectical sort of way of understanding that is that that very growth is the death of humanity. It is the death of the planet, of civilization, as we see with climate change and all of the other things that we are doing to the planet, thanks to capitalism. And this sort of dichotomy between growth and death at the heart of capitalism is on the one hand poetic and on the other hand really I think quite philosophically interesting and I think that's really been drawn into very stark relief in the last few days as you see people literally arguing that millions should die for economic growth. This is now the total distillation of full capitalist sociopathy and quite frankly i love it <laughs> well I, I have to agree with you completely and yes the antichrist president wants us all back uh, uh, uh infecting each other in the workplaces uh, by the day of the, the uh, in which we honor the resurrection of christ uh with the great anarcho luddites environmental west uh, uh western prairie states uh, activist edward abbey uh referred to growth but you're absolutely right. It's a quintessential requirement of capitalism on numerous levels. He referred to, he said, growth is the ideology of the cancer cell, you know, and, um, it, you know, it, it, it quite literally is Gro growth has always been the bourgeoisie's answer, um, to our complaints against its inequality and against its tendencies towards displacement and unemployment and rendering us all surplus. And disposable. Oh, we just need to grow more. We don't need to equalize things. We don't need to redistribute the wealth. We just need to expand more. That's how the system claims that it can alleviate uh, its own class tensions. And it's a um, it's a uh, it's a recipe for absolute disaster. I mean, one of the ironies of these great recessions, and this will be our second one. Uh, uh, most of your listeners lived through 2007 and 2000. I mean, yeah, 2007 to 2009 is um, you actually get a reduction in carbon emissions huh, for the first time. It's actually like like halfway decent for the planet. I, mean, I hate to say that because they, they cause so much misery. Um, and I don't think anyone should be fooled when Trump and his ilk uh, claim that they are worried that the cure could be worse than the disease because if we go into a recession, uh, so many people will be thrown out of work that they'll all kill themselves and there will all be kinds of mass desperation and all of that as if it's a humanistic concern that they have if we, if we slow down growth, right? That's their claim. They have a humanistic concern. Right. That it would we're, be we're all, we're all, people would die. <laughs> we're right. all Malthusians now. No, and it, it's not a humanistic concern that they have at all. It's a concern with profit rates. It's a concern with getting the money machine back and up and running again. And if you were really concerned on a humanistic level and a, and a decent uh, social level with the pain that is imposed by the recurrent boom and bust cycle of capitalism, then you would cease to be a capitalist and become an advocate of a basic universal income for all people and for health care as a human right for all people and ultimately for socialism 
and, and, and the, the creation of an economy uh, based on people instead of profits, right? But that's not what's going on with them at all. But they, 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 they can't say flat out, we want millions to die for our holy stock market. They can't actually say, we want you to kill your family, your parents, your grandparents, uh, uh, because of our holy stock market portfolio. They can't say that. So, of course, they wrap it in this, this, uh, this language of concern for more people will die uh, from a great recession. I think it's I think it's pretty appropriate to be using terminology uh, related to Christ and religion uh, because in fact uh, well aside from Trump being uh, very much the Antichrist um, there's also this added layer of real degeneracy when you look at his base and this sort of evangelical yeah. Christian kind of. I don't even want to say I don't even want to say Christian because it's almost at this point not even Christian. It's really just a hate cult uh, wrapped in a sort of religious veneer. But yet, I think it's quite obvious that using Easter and the sort of symbology of Christ on the cross and Christ's uh, resurrection, I don't think that this is in any way coincidental. I mean, this is very much uh, coordinated. This is very much kind of a Steve Bannon exploitation of the evangelical uh, base here, don't you think? I suspected that, you know, when I heard him referencing Easter like that, that that seemed that way. Um, there is a kind of, you know, uh, a half joking reference to himself as the chosen one. Uh, um, there's just an absurdity that I think a lot of us on the left have a hard time wrapping our minds around. I mean, about this guy who clearly doesn't believe in anything spiritual whatsoever is a religion of pure self. You know, he's literally just a flat out classic textbook, malignant narcissist devoid of anything. And yet, uh, it's it's one of the smartest things he did in 2016. He knew he needed the evangelical right. I don't know if Bannon told him he did or if he instinctually knew it himself. Um, and he gave them um, certain things, such as the vice presidency, which is currently held by a Christian fascist, which makes us all scared to get rid of Trump because then we'd have a rapture enthusiast in, in, in the White House. Uh, he gave them the vice presidency, and he essentially gave them uh, selection power over the federal bench from the Supreme Court on down. And he gives them opponents of abortion, uh, who, uh, being, you know, who basically advocates of, of female slavery. You know, he, he, he gives them the, the right to, to have approval over who gets appointed to key federal judiciary positions and um, all kinds of stuff like that. And when you ask him about it... Uh, they know he's a he's a he's a rapist. They know he's a libertine. They 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 know he's a soulless, uh, 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 um, malignant, narcissistic plutocrat. But but they say he gives us what we want. And sometimes you just need a street fighter. It's, we don't we don't need a truly Christian man in the White House. We just need a fighter for us. And uh, they rationalize it in very practical and pragmatic political kinds of terms, not unlike um, sort of some of the lesser evilism you hear sometimes on the left, you know, we know, you know, Bill Clinton isn't our guy or Barack Obama isn't really our guy, but, you know, I don't know, that, that's probably a poor analogy, but it's, it's quite amazing. I keep thinking of the parasite brain worm. 
uh, the way that it worms its way into the brain and feeds off of the living tissue. And uh, the reason I keep thinking of the brain worm is when I see these uh, polls that show Trump's approval rating at 60% yeah. over the handling of the virus. And I just, I wonder, does America have a brain worm, Paul? <laughs> yeah, it, it might. Listen, I, I, I have a feeling that's going to fade. Uh, and people who study polling data, and I'm not exactly one of those, our good friend Tony DiMaggio uh, is one, uh, um, will will remind you that that spike in approval for his handling of the crisis is somewhat consistent with what happens historically when the nation is faced with a, a great crisis, right? FDR got a huge boost. Um, in his approval rating after Pearl Harbor. Uh, the bumbling idiot George W. Bush got a ridiculous 30-point-plus boost in his approval rating uh, after 9-11. I think some people were just grateful for the fact that Trump had a kind of a pivot and went from calling it a hoax and denying that it was really going on and just saying, well, the weather will warm up and we'll be okay to seeming to sound, you know, like he was taking it seriously for a change. And there's a, I hate to say it, it's kind of Freudian, but there's just kind of a rally around daddy and sort of cower under the umbrella of the national security state and the quote unquote commander in chief. I wish people would stop habitually causing, calling the president of the United States, the commander in chief. He's only the commander in chief of the military. And yet it, it gets applied now generally, you know, about the society. But in any event, they cower under him. Uh, most people do not follow news and policy anywhere near as closely as we counter punchers do and say they don't know all that much. I mean, this is their fault. Don't get me wrong. I'm not making excuses that a lot of people don't know all that much about his early screw ups. You know, they just don't know about the extent to which he delayed testing and, and poo-pooed the whole thing and just really cost possibly millions of lives by doing that. He's not getting a boost. I, I am talking more about his overall approval rating now than, than the approval rating on his handling of the crisis, which, by the way, his overall is at 49%, which, I mean, that's his highest, which it's not a very high highest, but it's ridiculous that he's now at his highest. He hasn't got anything of, of, of a boost close to FDR after Pearl Harbor or Bush after uh, 9-11. Uh, he has nothing, I don't think, comparable to the goodwill that FDR had when he came in in 1933 and in the early, early mid-1930s. I think his approval overall and on handling the crisis is going to decline as the virus peaked. It hasn't peaked yet. One of the things that's so absurd uh, and sickening about his call for the loosening of restrictions is that it comes right as New York is going super, New York City is going super viral, you know, and as we're, and as we're getting ready to sort of take off here and become the epicenter, according to the World Health Organization of the coronavirus, just ridiculous. And I think um, if we are in fact due for 20% or higher unemployment by the middle of the end of the summer, that's got to, that's got to hurt him as well. So I wouldn't, freak out about it too much. But for a big part of his population, Eric, it doesn't freaking matter what he does. It doesn't matter how he screws up. None of it matters because their approval of him, okay, 
And listen, his approval rating uh, since coronavirus, it, it's barely even up with his with the Republicans. It's, it went from 90 percent to 91 percent or 91 to 92 percent. What drove his increase in approval rating is a slight uptick among independents and among Democrats. GOPers are just lockst- lockstep for him and have nothing to do with his job performance. OK, he said it when he was a candidate. I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and my followers would be there. I like to tell people that if a piss tape of Trump ever comes out, that Trump supporters will herald it and then they will go out and make their own piss tapes. Okay. And they will hire prostitutes to eat beets so that when they do their piss tapes, that they're all put on the internet, that they will piss orange, the color of Donald Trump. Okay. And at the same time, they'll probably be trumpeting Trump beats as the American magical cure to the so-called China virus. Donald Trump could kill the vivisect and eat children alive on on tape, and his approval rating would stay in the mid-high 40s. I heard someone on the radio recently interviewed say, they they, they posed the question, what if he shot someone on Fifth Avenue? And the lady, some Midwestern white lady, said, well, it would depend on why he shot them and what they were doing, you know? Um, and that support isn't about whether he's smart. Uh, it's not about whether he is a good policymaker. It's not about tax cuts for the rich, except at the elite funding level it is, but it isn't among population. Um, it's about the desire for a strong leader, and it's about whiteness and white nationalism, and those two go together. They're, his base and this is very clear in the best social science research that's come out on this. Want a strong leader who will smite the liberals and the lefties in the elite professional class uh, who are accused of opening the door, you know, for inferior, allegedly, uh, lazy, brown skinned others to cut in line and get ahead of us. And it's directed at women as well, uppity women. And if among evangelicals, it's about court appointments to stop abortion and to roll back gay rights and to protect guns and strengthen so-called family values while keeping non-whites and immigrants in particular. And they really don't care whether he's doing a good job on other things. They have a deep attachment around those two critical and interrelated and overlapping identifications, authoritarianism, strong leader, whiteness, white nationalism. It's all very fascist. Well, if Donald Trump is the Antichrist, then surely Nancy (laughs) Pelosi and Charles Schumer are our crusading angels, are they not? They are the leaders of our fearless resistance. They are manning the barricades of the Beltway, are they not? So... um, (laughs) Tell us again, tell us again about the glorious resistance that Schumer and Pelosi and the rest of their uh, band of merry men and women are putting up and um, how they've uh, fucked everyone over once again. Well, I mean, it's yeah, this goes on and on and on. This is an old story. I guess the the latest update right now, they haven't signed it yet, but um, the Democrats appear to be on board, Schumer and Pelosi, uh, the great champions of uh, the inauthentic opposition, the leaders of the inauthentic opposition party of fake resistance 
appear to be on board uh, with the bill that I'm expecting we're going to have signed tomorrow. It has to come out of the Senate and then go to the House, and it amounts to basically a uh, $4.5 trillion, or something, this is just, these numbers are insane, about a $4.5 trillion corporate bailout fund, basically a slush fund overseen by uh, Trump's ridiculous treasure, Treasury Secretary, uh, Steve Mnuchin, okay, with, with very little in the way of congressional constraints for, for uh, who they're going to hand money uh, out to. And it, it's just full of all kinds of loopholes for companies. They can lay off considerable portion of the workforce uh, for the next half year. They have no restrictions after they do that. Uh, 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 they have nominal restrictions on stock buybacks at companies that are bailed out, but they're very temporary restrictions and they're going to be insignificant. The bailed out companies can use the bailout money to pay dividends to their shareholders. Uh, I mean, it just, it just goes on and on and on like that. And then in exchange for this, our supposed great progressive socialist people's uh, champions, you know, basically you're getting a kind of a pittance, frankly. I mean, I didn't want to see all the details, but what I saw in the news today was like 1200 per adult. I mean, 1200 big deal. And then um, I don't know, 500 per kid. And I mean, they're literally fighting now with these, uh, this crypto fascist idiot and, and, and genuinely evil antichrist like person, uh, Lindsey Graham and a couple of other far right wing extreme capitalist Republicans fighting just to uh, to get six hundred dollars added to the unemployment pay- payouts to some of our lowest paid workers in the country. And I guess some of these uh, arch right wing uh, uh, senators come from the South, where historically they're very concerned that uh, that uh, social welfare payments not be any greater than the lowest paid jobs, right? That are held by people who used to be slaves. I mean, this, this goes way back in the South. And uh, so I guess they're gonna fight them over the, um, the $600, $600 a month for extremely lowly paid people. Uh, and I imagine they'll get them to come around by sweetening the pot in another kind of way. And then they'll sell that as a great uh, people's victory, these very minimal four months of uh, somewhat more generous unemployment benefits. And then these one-time checks, uh, which, I mean, these one-time checks are just absurd. They, they, they mean very little to me. Uh, um, and I, they're, they're, they're barely going to get anyone back into the role as a Keynesian consumer, trust me. Uh, so this is, this is what they're doing. But I mean, you know, this, this, they, they, they preceded this by three years of diverting public attention from the worst crimes of the Trump administration, you know, and going Russia, Russia, Russia. I mean, I think Russia sucks. I'm not a Russia fan. You know, I, I, I at a minimal level, I think Russia had reasons to want Trump in and screwed around a little bit and did what they could. I didn't think it was all that particularly decisive or significant. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they, they resisted all the warnings of even great liberal Russian dissidents like Masha Gessen, who said, don't do this. Don't just make everything Russia, because if you do that, he's going to wriggle out of it. You're not going to be able to prove anything. It's just going to be way, way too difficult. It's going to be a huge, massive diversion from this guy's worst crimes, you know, like like separating families and, and putting them in detention camps and putting children in cages. 
you know, and telling Border Patrol to shoot people if they have to and saying, if you break international law, that's all right, I'll pardon you. You know, and, and speaking of pardoning, you know, pardoning fascist war criminals like uh, Sheriff Arpaio and, you know, and, and a couple of those. I mean, I could go on and on. We don't we can't we don't have time through the, the litany of Trump's crime. We don't have time. Uh, and I'm also billing by the hour. So we're going <laughs> to take a quick break. And on the other side of the break, I want to cheer things up. Let's switch gears a little bit and cheer things up sure. and talk about how badly Bernie burned out. And uh, we'll talk yeah, about uh, some other some other collapses and some other gloom and doom on the other side of the break. And uh, maybe also a positive note if we can fix one in there. Anyway, uh, on the other side of the break, we'll continue the conversation with Paul Street. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. Counterpunch Radio, chatting with Paul Street, the website paulstreet.org. You can find all the work there. Of course, most importantly, Paul is a regular contributor at Counterpunch. You can find him uh, basically every week. Um, Paul, Bernie was an interesting phenomenon. Bernie was something that uh, maybe meant something different to seasoned political activists than he might have meant to young political activists first get you know getting their feet wet in the uh, blood and sand of the arena. Um, but whatever he may have meant, Bernie was definitely a political moment, a unique political moment, and. Uh, kind of elicited a lot of hope in people. 
And here we are, just a, just you know, weeks after Bernie was basically the front runner, um, and Bernie's basically collapsed. Now, of course, the coronavirus and everything else has changed the you know upset the apple cart, kind of uh, reshuffled the deck, as it were. But Bernie's campaign was a failure. Bernie uh, did not transform the Democratic Party. Bernie did not activate some new latent segment of the Democratic Party base. Bernie uh, did not succeed. And as much as it might be painful for a lot of people to hear that and to have to say that, I think that's the reality. And leaving aside voter suppression, leaving aside questionable questionable vote tallies and results and all of the other things that absolutely can be discussed and should be discussed at the broader level bernie failed and i want to get a macro sense from you paul as somebody who has been studying uh u.s politics going back to the 60s tell me about bernie and this moment and how we're to read it just as it's just now entering into history well i mean i think you're right to be talking about him um in the past tense, and to you know have a kind of sense of mourning about that because it, uh, at one level it is unfortunate. That, what I would say was most extraordinary in the Sanders phenomena was how far he got with literally or practically no campaign finance support at all from big business. That is just sort of unreal. And this goes back to 2016. Uh, you know, the Clintons kind of welcomed him in in 2016 because the whole thing was looking too much like uh, a coronation for Queen Hillary. And they needed a patsy and they needed a foil. And uh, little did they know this guy actually became a problem for them to some degree. And, and it was amazing how far he got on small contributions. And that's true this time to, you know, to some extent. And I even got seduced into thinking maybe this was going somewhere after uh, New Hampshire, and I guess I naively thought he might cut into um, the black vote in South Carolina. And of course, James Clyburn played a key role in making sure that that didn't happen. Um, I'm not entirely sure about his problem with the black vote. That was really critical, his failure to do uh, well at all in South Carolina, where the majority of the primary voters are African. American. I think with black voters, he's always had a problem. I think some of it is cultural. I think some of it has to do with being an old guy, a Jewish guy from, with a Brooklyn accent, and he talks real fast uh, 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 from New York. I, I think that the black vote issue he's, that he had this time around is not so much a love of Biden. Uh, uh, or even so much the link of between uh, Biden and Obama as it was a kind of pragmatic sense in the black electorate that Biden was the one with the money and the connections and the name recognition and the history um, to be most viable, okay, to be most viable against Trump. There is a sense in the black community, and I've seen this from leafleting in Chicago, uh, when you talk to Latino people and black people on the streets of Chicago, they get it right away. There's no argument that Donald Trump is a fascistic, uh, existential, arch-authoritarian, vicious, antichrist menace, an existential menace to everything good and decent in the world. They get that, and they want him out. Uh, and with TV and with preachers and with talking heads, 
um, and 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 established black misleader politicians like uh, James Clyburn just drumming home this notion that Biden was the electable one and Bernie's not the electable one. And also this kind of skepticism among black voters that most whites would ever actually really get behind somebody as progressive as Bernie Sanders. Uh, he, Bernie just couldn't get the black vote. He's not succeeded. It's really quite absurd that Sanders with a social democratic agenda and an actual history of being arrested as part of the civil rights movement in the early 1960s would lose the black vote to uh, a, a guy like Biden who has an, an, a history that he seems to be proud of, of collaboration with segregationist white senators from the deep south. Um, um, I think Bernie was killed by Warren to some extent. Uh, I will tell you from Iowa City, Precinct 17, and in this town in general, that the really, really big problem for Sanders uh, was there's a couple of things. One of them was Warren. Warren really stole a lot of the uh, quote-unquote progressive thunder. I don't really think she's all that progressive, but a lot of people thought she was. She appealed to the professional middle class and to suburban soccer moms and folks like that. Bernie did not get the youth out. I will tell you from the ground, the Precinct 17 is very interesting. The one I'm in in Iowa City, because it's a campus town, it's a campus precinct where we live. is very closely connected to student housing. And I did not see the kids coming out this time remotely close to 2016, or for that matter, remotely close to how they came out for Obama in 2008. So there was a problem with the youth. Uh, there was a problem around gender with a lot of the Liz Warren people were females. Uh, he, he wasn't just the one anti-Hillary this time. He had to share the, the anti-establishment uh, uh, feeling, at least. He was actually the only anti-establishment candidate, but he had to share the anti-establishment feeling with, uh, with, with, um, with Warren uh, and actually sort of, oddly enough, with Buttigieg here in town, because a lot of people confuse Buttigieg being gay with Buttigieg being a progressive. I mean, I hate to say it like that, but there's, there's this identity politics confusion, which is real big in campus towns. I also, I think that, I think Bernie was killed, though, primarily. I don't, I don't know that he, he, there's an issue with age, too. I mean, he's really, really, really old. I mean, I know. I know that Biden's really old, too. Uh, but I think he was killed, um, and to some extent, by MSD, uh, NBC and CNN and the New York Times and all that. They just red-baited the hell out of him. They kept saying he can't win. I think these cable channels have become a really big problem now. This is what activists tell me, regular activists tell me, like uh, this guy Vince Emanuel in Michigan City has told me, you just can't get people up off of their couches and off their asses. They're locked in on watching, you know, uh, 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 Rachel Maddow and Don Lemon and Anderson Cooper and all these things, this, this, which is, you know, completely fake, inauthentic, pretend progressive cable news channels who in turn, of course, take all their cues on what they're going to talk about every night from the New York Times and the Washington Post, uh, which are anything but left-wing and progressive outlets. And they just red-baited the hell out of Sanders subtly. You know, Chris Matthews wasn't so subtle and he lost his job, but the, the, rest, of the, the rest of the smarter, more sophisticated neoliberal talking heads very subtly and in a sophisticated fashion red-baited Sanders for months. Uh, and they channeled the uh, ridiculous Rahm Emanuel narrative 
that Sanders wants to take away your health insurance. I mean, it's just Orwellian absurdity. Here was a guy who wants to make healthcare a human right, give everybody health insurance as a public, uh, give you, everyone a card at birth. You're entitled to healthcare as a human right. And they channel this whole ridiculous narrative. You saw the debate moderators channel it. They used it against Warren early on and she caved. They used it against him. Bernie at least didn't cave on that. And it's just, you know, completely insane. And they say they want well, to take away your health insurance Paul. and all of this. And so they report, well, let me finish this, but yeah. they end up reporting the news that they helped make at MS, uh, and, uh, MSDNC and, and, and CNN. It's an Orwellian masterpiece, as my friend Terry Thomas likes to say. I don't disagree with any of that, but I mean, and I'm not yeah. trying to be so harsh on Bernie necessarily, but come yeah. on. You knew all of that was coming. You knew the red okay. baiting was coming. You knew, I mean, if 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 those are the things that was enough to topple uh, Bernie Sanders and, and, and this campaign, then it's like, you know, then, then it was a house of cards to begin with. Because, I mean, the red baiting from the corporate media, this was the most predictable thing you could have ever had. Now, okay. I wanna, he was too kind. He said, this is his well, great weakness. He won't well, attack. He and will I, well, not and, attack. And, and that's the other part that yeah. I was going to get to is that yeah. is, is this Joe Biden. Joe's my friend. He's a friend of mine. Right. He's, he's my, he's a friend of mine. It's not just that you're, that, that you're unwilling to attack him. That's part, that's part of the problem. But the other part of the problem right. there is that it feeds the narrative of lunch yep. bucket Joe, of Joe as the working man's guy, like a every man, you know, that's Joe Biden's whole shtick, right? He comes across as he's like this, like working class, you know, regular guy from Scranton, PA, when in fact he's been yeah. 45 years working, you know, screwing over working class people all over the country with credit card companies and debt and all the rest oh, of the yeah. shit he's been involved yeah. in, right? So, yeah. so, so Bernie failed to not only attack Biden, but to undermine the very character that he has manufactured for himself, right? The, the hard hat Joe Biden type, right? So that was one big failure for Bernie, among many sure. others. But I want to return to uh, one point you mentioned at the top, and, and um, this one I find particularly interesting, and I'm going to reference a few, uh, well, no, I'm not going to reference people by name, but several uh, radical uh, black actors activists who I respect who have spoken on this subject. And I want to bring it up to you since you quite literally wrote, well, several Obama books, but you quite literally wrote the book on Obama. Well, just two. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, well, let's not, you know, let's not, let's not split hairs here. All right. <laughs> so I want to run this by you, Paul. Yeah. Bernie failed with the black voters, especially in the South, for all of the reasons that you mentioned, his inability to connect and all of those things. But there is an argument to be made that it's not that Bernie failed with black voters. It's that black voters are now reactionary. That is the argument that a number of people have made about the long-term impact of Obama on oh, black right. on black American voters that black well, you know, voters today I, I, yeah right. let me just finish this point that black voters sure, sure. today are not voting in the traditionally more progressive way that they had historically but rather they're voting in a essentially defensive posture in defense of Obama 
and the perception that anything that is seeking to dismantle or undermine Obama is inherently bad, even if it's doing so from the left. Yeah. Uh, There might be something to that. You know, one of the um, warnings that I had about the Obama phenomenon in my first book on him was uh, concern, and I saw this in a in a very direct kind of way, working at a as one of the few white employees at a black uh, civil rights agency in Chicago in the early 20th century, was that the way that um, Obama uh, had the the threat of um, moving the black electorate further to the right, uh, and, and and maybe in some very dramatic kinds of ways, and um, yeah, I think that's I think that's a real problem. Historically, the voting data, I'm trying to remember the uh, name of the academic who did the research on his last name, Dawson, political scientist, not African-American political scientist named Dawson. Uh, blacks always aligned uh, uh, as the leftmost section on policy, on foreign policy, on domestic policy uh, within the electorate. And I mean, the, the, the most, the most sort of instinctually social. Of course, they had an inherent, and, an inherent yeah, distrust, an inherent right. distrust of U.S. institutions has always oh, yeah. traditionally been the the sort right. of the core of black politics, at least you know on an yeah. ideological level. And and one of the many ways in which Obama has been a disaster uh, uh, for the struggle for black equality is is precisely that. You know, and just that symbolic pull of his presence in the White House. And uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't have a handle uh, on enough of how much the black vote going the way it did was a pragmatic calculation that uh, that just Biden is the best way to stop the Antichrist. And how much of it is a uh, is, is what you're talking about, what we're talking about right now. I guess it's a combination of all of the above. Right. Of course. And there and are I, generation, and... There's generational differences uh, and the younger black voters. uh tend to be a little different. It has to do with some of the generational differences that are across race, I think, that they're just this this economy is a disaster for younger people. Right, and I also think that there is, uh, you know, as a, sort of a psychological connection to not just not just Obama, but what Biden represented for Obama. Right, that Biden represented a sort of the a white establishment figure willing to be subservient to yeah. Obama. Right, that 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 that, right. that that carries a lot yeah. of cachet among uh, especially older uh, African American voters. I mean, there was a there was a good piece uh, uh, floating around on Facebook, actually. I think it was a Facebook post talking about precisely that, about about some of the psychology behind that and seeing Biden not as, you know, Obama's, uh, you know, uh, inheritor, but rather as the one who was uh, willingly Obama's sidekick and then sort of kind of latching on to yeah. him for that reason. There was a lot to that. There was the, 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 the pull of Obama, the symbolic pull of Obama was incredibly powerful and I found myself underestimating it at times when I was trying to promote my first book on Obama and I was if I was talking to black audiences or significantly black audiences, just how careful you had to be uh, just saying basic and honest things about what his real agenda really was. This is a very neoliberal agenda, very corporatist agenda, and a very imperial and militarist agenda. I mean, Obama wasn't even particularly black, actually. He wasn't even, he wasn't even that strong in civil rights. And he'd be very careful talking about that stuff. And it was, it was an irony about that, uh, in Chicago at least. And I, like I said, I work in, a, in, in the south side of the black community. Um, 
Obama was not very popular uh, through his first two or three terms in the Illinois Senate. He was considered too Hyde Park, too University of Chicago. He was considered elitist. He was considered snooty. He was considered, for all intents and purposes, white uh, uh, in terms of his affiliations with the, with the business community and all of this. And he's over at the University of Chicago Law School, and he got his clock cleaned by Bobby Rush when he challenged him for a congressional seat in, I think it was 2000. Uh, when he got chosen by Illinois Senate Majority Leader Emil Jones for the open U.S. Senate seat for 2004, he and, and, and he just sort of ascended. And then he gave that keynote address and he immediately grad, uh, graduated to being to presidential consideration. And he had an aura, a symbolic aura, a sacred aura around him. He became untouchable uh, amongst my colleagues, um, most of them, not all of them, old time civil rights people with sort of Black Panther backgrounds and all of that who like completely saw through his 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 shit. Uh, but not most. And uh, from that point on, yeah, the the pull, the, the symbolic pull of 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 a first black president in the land of cotton uh, in the land of black chattel slavery has been very potent indeed. So you, you're you're probably onto something, or these scholars that you're citing are probably on onto something in that regard. The final point about Bernie before we move on to another explosive topic. Um, I just want to I just want to kind of wrap up this sort of postmortem of Bernie here because uh, what does this mean? I, look, I know what it means for Democrats. I know what it means for those who call themselves little p progressives, but still think of themselves as Democrats, right? But uh, I can't really speak to them, right? But for those of us who are very much outside of the Democratic Party and who are very much on the left and who consider ourselves socialists or whatever it is that we consider ourselves, who have I don't who have for various reasons supported Bernie or wanted to see Bernie be successful, etc. What is the what is the takeaway here? Uh, because that is the part that is actually probably the most yeah. unclear the most unclear to me because I could go a couple of different ways with it to be perfectly honest. Well, the takeaway that I was hoping we'd have, and it was one of my tactical reasons for getting behind the Sanders phenomenon, at least to some degree, of certainly holding my fire. If you remember my writings and. 2015 and 2016, I just was, I was, I was just ripping Bernie from the left, left and right. And I changed my tone a little bit. Uh, and I was hoping that he would go as far as he could. I never had the expectation that he would get the nomination, but I wanted him to make them screw him out of it in as instructive and as vicious and as an undeniable and transparent fashion as possible so as to radicalize uh, young Bernie supporters and give them a really graphic illustration, right? A history lesson in how much, and this is a persistent theme in my, in my writing at, at, uh, troop, at, troop, at, at, at Counterpunch over the years, how much the Democratic establishment hates them, okay? And I'm from Chicago, so I really know about that. If you're from Chicago, and this goes back to the first daily and then the second daily, and then Rahm Emanuel and all these machine Democrats, they hate progressives. They loathe them. Obama learned to completely distance himself from and loathe uh, progressives. You know, and I mean, I have so many stories about that. We don't have time for it. 
but the, the perfect case study and example right now is that they would actually freaking run this this dementia victim, this 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 cringing right wing corporatist and imperialist who can't even think straight, right? Uh, 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 um, Joe Biden. I mean, it's just it's just a chutzpah to put such a decrepit and obviously mentally disabled candidate forward is just, to me, sort of the final proof that they would rather lose to the right wing party, as I've been saying for years, even uh, uh, an increasingly fascist, fascistic, apocalyptic right wing Republican party. They would rather lose to that party than lose to just the mildly social democratic left wing of their own party. And I wanted that lesson to be clear. And I was hoping that Bernie would have enough delegates that it would have to go to the convention in Milwaukee and they'd have to pull in their openly authoritarian corporate imperial super delegates to defeat him. And that this could be a, this, that this could be an educational moment leading to a breakthrough towards a, a real movement in the streets uh, or and or third party politics, uh, uh, maybe people joining the movement for a people's party, which has been started up and has been started up for a while by some young staffers uh, who, who, who left the Bernie phenomena. They were, they were Sanders staffers and they go, this isn't going to work. Uh, and he's got to run as an independent. He's got to, he's got to run as a third party. And, you know, and, and um, now with coronavirus, I don't know where, I don't know where it all goes. I don't know if uh, it, it sounds like, I don't know. If, it seems like Biden might have enough people, might have enough delegates, excuse me, to, to get it without having to go to the super delegates on a second ballot and all of it. And I, I don't, I don't know what it means, but my God, they, uh, younger, any younger, Bernie Sanders nieces out there listening to me, listen to an old timer. I'm from Chicago. They hate you, okay? They loathe you. They would rather have a second Trump term than uh, than run the candidate who alone had the capacity to mobilize disadvantaged and demobilized constituencies uh, that need to be mobilized. Yeah, and they don't they, they don't want to win. Basically, I think I think a lot of young progressives understand uh that the ruling establishment within the democratic party hates them but um they don't necessarily understand the structural ways in which this ongoing idea of transforming the democratic party from within is simply uh doomed to fail that that i think that if there's one thing that's most instructive about the Bernie movement, the Bernie campaign, I don't know if we could really call it a movement, campaign, movement, whatever, uh, is that even when you gather millions of people and tens of millions of dollars and you spark a nationwide movement and you capture a sort of zeitgeist, even when you do all of that, the structural obstacles put in the way of anybody attempting to assail the Democratic Party make it impossible, even with all of those things. So then it again, oh, absolutely, it again absolutely. raises, Imagine. yeah, it again just raises the question: What exactly is the political goal of any engagement at all 
with Democrats? Is there even a reason to engage with them? Because now, see, Bernie has driven us into a very interesting place. And I, I and I don't know that anybody really talks about this, but I would be very interested if I had a chance to ask Bernie I, one question. My question would be this. So since your campaign has failed and you're not going to be president, and you went around the country over and over and over and over and over again telling us that the scientists have said we have less than 12 years before we have a cataclysm on our hands. What now, Bernie? Because it's not you, and you said we have less than 12 years, so what now? Right. Because it ain't going to be transform the Democratic Party in the next nine years. So what now? Well, listen, I mean, it's going to be, there's going to be a repeat here. He's going to be doing, a, he's going to be barnstorming for Joe Biden, which is just going to be sad to watch. I'm, I'm not even, when he comes to Iowa, I'm, I'm, I imagine I'll still be here because of the coronavirus. When he comes here, I, I'm not going to listen to him. I, I can't even be part of that at all. That's going to be sad to behold. Um, um, you know, and then he's going to claim that he's impacting the platform. Remember that, that whole thing that we, we, we you know, we help oh, secure the most oh. progressive me... platforms are irrelevant. They, they are say... utterly of, of no significance at all. Yeah. He's going to he's going to say all of that. But but right. Paul, you know where this is going to go. 2024, 2028, most important election of our lifetime. We have to elect AOC president. We have to make sure that <laughs> Rashida Tlaib gets her Senate seat. We have to do this. We have to do that. Right. It's just well, going frankly, to be listen, it's going I, to be an ongoing with, election just, cycle. We're not just dealing with, ob- with obstacles to uh, 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 finding progressive change within the Democratic, you know, through the Democratic Party, right? There are fundamental underlying structural institutional obstacles to change through electoral politics in general under the dominant reigning uh, U.S. party and election system. I mean, it's just a fundamentally skewed order on, on, on all kinds of levels, literally going back uh, uh, for centuries. I mean, we are stuck with an archaic system uh, crafted by slave owners and merchant capitalists. Uh, no one likes to talk about this, but for, for whom democracy was the ultimate nightmare. And, and they, you know, and, 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 and all that was prior to the rise of the modern corporation and, and the concentrations of wealth that now uh, 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 dominate the political process and, and, and and own the media there and therefore all the information that everybody gets. So, I mean, you know, uh, um, this really raises fundamental questions about what politics is. Is it only electoral politics? Not for me. I'm, I'm, I've always, I'm in the streets. I'm all, I'm always in the streets, particularly when I'm in Chicago and, uh, we're trying to mobilize people around movements right now. Uh, 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 you know, I, uh, for instance, Trump and Pence, I, you know, I've, I've consistently felt that they needed to face a kind of pressure, uh, different than just the fear uh, of getting defenestrated by people who get to go in a voting booth for two minutes once every 1,460 days. Uh, uh, other countries exercise street heat. Okay, how do they get rid of the, the 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 government? How do they get rid of that racist governor in 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 Puerto Rico? Right? How did they roll back that uh, discriminatory tax in France? You know, this is we we have to break out of this American exceptionalism where we think fascism couldn't happen here and where we think we don't have to do the kinds of things people do in other countries, like develop real social movements beneath and beyond the election cycle. So, I mean, if you ask me where we go from here, uh, it can't be just limited to uh, dreaming 
of Santa Claus electoral saviors. That's just not going to happen. I mean, Sanders, imagine Sanders getting the nomination. Then he would have been torpedoed by the corporate media and a lot of uh, walls, a lot of Democratic investors and normally supported Democrat would have supported Trump or sat the election out. Let's say he miraculously still even then got in the presidency. He would have faced a capital strike. He would have faced relentless media criticism. The stock market would have crashed. Uh, you know, obviously the healthcare insurance corporations would have gone completely uh, apeshit over Sanders being in there. And uh, he would have been badly crippled. He had very few congressional allies. And all of this would then be taken to be proof of the failure of socialism, right? Even though it would all really actually be proof of the authoritarian tendencies and failures of capitalism. And I almost sometimes wonder if we dodged a bullet by him not actually getting in there because he would be torpedoed and crippled. And uh, the scenario that I just uh, described would undoubtedly ensue. So if we want to have a revolution, we have to have a revolution. We don't just need to elect somebody, right? Not just about who's sitting in the White House, it's about who's sitting in the streets. And even if Final. we got someone decent and there, nothing's going to happen without people in the streets. So switching gears, uh, final subject here before we call it a night. Some interesting developments at uh, another publication that you have been uh, working oh, okay. with for, for, for quite a while now. And uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, there have been, uh, well, there's been some tremendous upheaval over at Truthdig, uh, a news outlet that many of us have, have followed for, for many years now. So... Paul, um, without without any um, introduction, I just want to ask you to give us a little bit of an understanding of what happened at Truth Dig from your perspective, and um, what's happened well, to you, and you, what happens next. Funny you bring that up. It's funny you bring that up because I literally just uh, I don't know an hour and a half ago uh, got a termination notice via email from Truth Dig, which I assume numerous other staff. There, God, I am not on the ground floor in Truthdig. I've been a contract writer in Chicago and Iowa City. I've been sending pieces out for the last, I don't know, two plus years um, that then go to some very good and skilled copy editors. Um, and um, that's all over now. Uh, and to some extent, I feel like, you know, there's a, a certain aspect of being caught in the crossfire, but uh, I was raised to not cross picket lines and to not go against uh, job actions and my understanding. And I got a lot of this from Chris Hedges. Chris Hedges is the reason um, that I was ever in Truth Day. He, he sort of reached out and, and, and brought me into the staff uh, because he liked actually my writings uh, about Sanders in 2015 and 2016. They're very similar to stuff he was write, writing at the same time. And uh, I, I, that might not be all of it. So um, what, I, what I have from people there is that uh, they had two co-owners. Um, one is Wade Kaufman and the other is Robert Shear. Robert Shear is probably known to some of your listeners as an old time new left veteran. He goes back to Ramparts magazine, the real hero of the 60s. Uh, and he was over at the nation for a long time. And so he was one of the co-owners and keeping a progressive bent over at Truthdig and keeping helping keep left leaning people like myself and uh, and Hedges as part of the staff there. Hedges became sort of the household name at, at Truthdig where everyone would go to see what his latest was. He'd always have one column a week. Well, so Wade Kaufman, for whatever reasons, and I don't claim to have the inside information on this, 
decided it was time to take full control of the outlet. And that meant pulling, um, that meant uh, demanding the money back that she had loaned to the site. They, Sheer and her were both co-owners, but she had all the money. And she's a, she has inherited money. She comes from wealth. And I don't really, I don't have never had any personal conflict or any personal gripes with her at all. So it was the whole Sheer thing. Sheer was, a, she was moving Sheer out as editor. Uh, and at the same time, there were issues with copy edit staff and other staff there about the contracts that they were being asked to sign now, which involved signing away civil rights and labor rights uh, on the job. And there were issues with copy editors who were um, being expected to just wait around for articles to come in, you know, during periods of time, but only being paid, for example, for the time in which they were working on the articles, even if they had to wait around for five hours, which is technically a violation. And, you know, things like that. And so they started a, some of the top, top copy editors and Hedges, their top writer, started a strike uh, over these uh, workplace issues and also over the sheer thing. Uh, um, and I honored it. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's what I do in a situation like that. And I asked around and found out a few things about it. And now I have a termination notice. You know, I, I, uh, I don't, I don't, I've never set foot in the truth dig office. Okay. I've never been to California. I've never been into Santa, Santa Monica. I don't know what's going to happen to the place now, but uh, I don't know if it reopens with a new name. If Wade Kaufman reopens it with permanent replacements, um, or what, I just don't know. So I'll, I'll, I'll know more <laughs> as this postmortem unfolds, but it looks like I'm done there. And, uh, you know, it's at one level, it's a shame, uh, um, it, it was a little modest income for writing, which is hard to come by for left writers, as left writers will tell you. And it was an audience. Um, writers like to be read, and people read Truth Dig, and um, and that's over now. So it's uh, it's unfortunate. Now it would be uh, it would be uh, unfortunate if I didn't note the fact that Kaufman herself has uh, written a piece that was published at Truth Dig, uh, giving her side of the story, in which she certainly paints a different picture. One in which uh, several female staffers had complained about uh, inappropriate conduct by Sheer, yeah. and that some kind of internal issues. I mean, this is just I'm reading it directly out of what she wrote. You know, not making any judgment about it, but. Um, so it does seem that, at least right. from from her perspective, there was more going on than a simple power play here. Yeah, that's right. The, the thing, and and see, that's something I I could I could not credibly comment upon at all because, like I said, I've never I've never set foot in the Truth Dig offices a day in my life. I've never been out there. You know anything about that? In fact, I've never interacted with Sheer once. I've not even so much as an email. I've been all through two or three copy editors and through Chris and through, and through Chris Hedges. So that I, yeah, it would not be appropriate for me to pretend that I know anything about that. But I do know that that letter uh, seemed to leave out uh, some of the other issues related to, to employee relations, uh, irrespective of whatever was or was not going on between her and Shear and between Shear and female employees. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's, one of the issues there, I, I you know, shears of a generation of, of 60s activists that, uh, you know, a lot of feminism was born out of the patriarchy of South 60s new left activists back in that day. Uh, but I, but that's, that's just a kind of an abstract thing I know 
from from history. I don't know anything about what happened with that. So yeah, yeah, I'm just right. this contract writer here. Yeah, and I, I, I guess I heard enough of it uh, from some key staff there that I decided I had to honor that. I wasn't I wasn't about to uh, I wasn't about to keep writing when significant numbers of copy edits staff, including people who've done really nice work on pieces I sent them, people I'd worked with, you know, and, and had collegial relations with. I mean, they were going out, you know, and um, and there you go. So uh, I don't know if it re- reconstitutes. I mean, if it goes away, um, you know, that's another that's another loss of, of uh, left, left media voices. I mean, well, that's what I was just I about to the, say. That's exactly I what I was just ISO, about to but say. I, I wasn't in the ISO, but I knew a lot of Haymarket publishers and ISO types of people in Chicago. And I like socialist worker. I mean, I didn't like everything in socialist work, but I used to find some really good, insightful analyses and reports from people like Lee Sustar and commentaries by Lance Selfa and a number of um, a number of folks there. And it's just gone. It's just it's it's that that out that outlet's gone. Um, you know, truth is going to be gone. I don't agree with everything the World Socialist website says, you know, sometimes those guys go seem to go off the deep end, but uh, damn, there's some good, smart, bright analyses there every once in a while, you know, and uh, I'd hate to see it just disappear. So the universe of uh, left media is shrinking. Of course, well, it was going I... down with the, the changing logarithms, you know, truth dig went way down, black agenda report went way down. I assume counterpunch took a hit with some of the, uh, you know, the Google logarithm changes and all that. Well, you know, as I said at the top of the show, COVID-19 and everything that's going on now is, I think, highlighting once again the importance of alternative media on the left and of supporting alternative media because exactly as you said, it can disappear quite literally overnight. Uh, so we will leave it there. Paul Street, paulstreet.org is the website, the book They Rule, The 1% Versus Democracy. Get yourself a copy of that and also make sure that you follow Paul's column at Counterpunch. He's a regular with us and we love to read every single thing that he writes. Paul, thank you as always for coming on the show. You betcha. Listeners, thank you as always for listening and we will chat again next week.